Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In today's sermon, we hear three different meanings for the word alert, but the constant definition of keeping our passions under control when it comes to being sober-minded. You're listening to Hometown Exiles, Alert and Sober-Minded by Rev. Peter Yonker. We continue our series on uh, the first letter of Peter, Peter's first letter today. And today I I don't just have one uh, Bible passage to read, I actually have three. And I'll explain why that is um, just for a moment. Um, This is the Hometown Exiles series. And in this series we are thinking together about what it means to live in our exile. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom in this world when our true home is in the new creation. And so far, as we've been thinking about how we kingdom citizens carry ourselves, we've talked about how to relate to authorities. We've talked about how when people speak ill of us, we bless and return with goodness. We've talked about humility. And today, we're going to focus on another thing, another theme, another way that Peter would have us carry ourselves, that the Holy Spirit would have us carry ourselves, And it's something that Peter mentions, an instruction that he gives, not once, not twice, but three times in this letter. And it's sort of a uniquely, uh, it's, it's unique to Peter, this call. And it's a call to be alert and sober minded. Alert and sober minded. So let's read all three times that Peter gives us this call. First, in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter has just reminded us of the inheritance we have in Jesus an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. And out of that inheritance, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. The next usage is in chapter 4, and I'll read verses 7 and 8. Peter says, The end of all things is near. Okay, so that sounds like crisis. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then finally, at the very end of the letter, Peter offers this exhortation one more time. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. On September 28, 1994, the ferry Estonia was traveling across the Baltic Sea in the middle of the night. It was on its way from Tallinn in Estonia to Stockholm, Sweden. There were about a thousand people on board. And it was traveling right into the face of a gale. It was a good-sized autumn storm with big waves. And in the middle of the night, about halfway across, there was this terrible grating sound of metal on metal. 
And it turns out it was the sound of a large wave hitting the door at the front of the, of the, of the ferry. And, and this is, if you can picture this, the, this ferry had a door at the front that opened up and that's where you drove in the trucks and that's where you drove in the cars. That's where all the people came in. A big wave hit that front door and sheared it right off. Water started to pour in and within 45 minutes, that ferry sunk to the bottom of the Baltic Sea. 850 people died. It was the second worst natural marine disaster in the 20th century after the Titanic. In the early 2000s, uh, an author named William Langeweich wrote an article in The Atlantic in which he recreated those terrible 45 minutes. What he did is he went to all the survivors' accounts. There's about 120 survivors. He read their accounts and he pieced together what it was like on that ship in the moments leading up to the accident and in those terrible 45 minutes before she sank. And what's really interesting, and I don't mean to make a tragedy into something interesting, but what is, what is fascinating, what we can learn from this, if you read his account, is it becomes a catalog of the way people behave when they're under extreme pressure. If you look at the way people behaved in those 45 minutes under extreme pressure, you get a catalog of how humans behave when their life is on the line. And there are three main ways people seem to react in this crisis. A lot of them panicked and became aggressive. So as you can imagine, there are people pushing each other out of the way, trying to push each other out of the way to get into the lifeboats, fighting over life jackets. In fact, according to some survivors, there were even strong people who tore the life jackets off the back of the weak and the old so that they could survive. So the worst of human behavior, panic that led to aggression. There was also panic that led to paralysis. So some people just sort of collapsed and survivors said they would walk down the halls or they'd run down the halls of the ship to try to get off and there'd be people just sitting down doing nothing, not even trying to save themselves. The panic, the situation was just so overwhelming that they collapsed. So paralysis and aggression, and, and according to language, by far most of the people on the ship, that was how they reacted, one of those two things. But there were a few people who acted with something like goodness and kindness. Some of the crew members made a human chain and rescued some of those who were in most distress. There were reports of one man on the boat who went around and found panicking people and calmed them, said, calm down, it's going to be okay, let me help you. He helped them find life jackets. He taught them how to put the life jackets on. He arranged a system for their distribution. Aggression, paralysis, kindness. You read Langweish's article and what you can't help thinking, certainly what I started thinking is, where would I have been? Who would I have been in those 45 minutes? How would I have reacted under those conditions of enormous duress? As we have already said multiple times in this series, the people to whom Peter is writing in Asia Minor are also under duress. They are suffering people. 
They have been marginalized in their society. Their culture is pushing them away. They're socially marginalized. They're economically marginalized. They may not be under uh, complete persecution yet, but we know from history that within 50 years, Christians in Asia Minor were being arrested and they were being executed. So things are getting bad. And, and they're getting bad enough that, that Peter compares their situation to facing a roaring lion who is walking around ready to devour people. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a situation where it could easily be panic, right? If you knew there was a roaring lion in your neighborhood, you might experience something like panic. But there's no panic in Peter. Instead, three times, Peter calls us to this other attitude. He says, be alert and sober-minded. What does he mean by that? Today, as we think about the pressures that we face out in the world, I want to dig deep into what Peter means by that instruction, what it means to be alert and sober-minded. And as we dig deep, it's, it's interesting. In the English and you heard that as I read it, all three times Peter gives exactly the same instruction more or less, right? In the English it's alert and sober-minded, alert and sober-minded, alert and sober-minded. But if you go back to the Greek, the words aren't all the same. They're slightly different, and that gives us different nuances of what Peter is instructing us here in this book. So let's, I want to look at all those things. First, in all three of the passages that I read, there is one word that stays the same. And that's the word for sober-minded. When Peter calls us to be sober-minded, he uses the word nephos. And the word nephos literally means sober. So most of the time it's used, it's like the opposite of being drunk. Now, when Peter calls us to be nephos, he's not calling us to avoid liquor, although that may be a good thing too. What he's calling us to avoid is a kind of situation where our passions get so much the better of us that we don't think straight anymore. Specifically, when, when fear and anger take us over so much that it's like we are drunk, that our perceptions are skewed because fear and anger have taken us over so much. That's the kind of situation that Peter warns us against. So when he calls the people to be nephos, he's asking them to be like society's designated driver. All around, the party is going crazy and people are losing their minds and you're the person who's thinking straight, who can drive straight, who can keep between the lines. Nephos, sober-minded, clear-headed in a world that's going crazy. So that's the instruction that stays the same in all three passages. The other word in the English is alert. Be alert. And the Greek word for alert changes each and every time. So in each of those passages, our alertness, Peter's calling us to something slightly different. So I want to look at each of those separately. In the first passage, the Greek that is translated as alert is actually an entire phrase. And the phrase, literally in English, is gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. If you read the King James Version, that's how you'd find it translated there. Funny story about that. Reverend Galen Meyer, a member of this congregation, 
taught religion and theology down at South Christian for a lot of years. Some of you may have had him as a teacher. Uh, he, in his office, in his classroom, had various Bible passages set up on the wall to guide the kids. And 1 Peter 1.13 was one of those passages in the King James Version. So he had, gird up the loins of your mind on his wall. And he thought it was a good passage for for um, young people to learn to express their gratitude to God, to discipline their minds as gratitude for what God has done for them. And every year he'd do a devotion on each and every one of those Bible passages. And, and the day he did a devotion on, on 1 Peter 1.13, an eager young student in the class volunteered to read it. And he said in a loud voice, gird up the low ends of your mind. He was perplexed by this strange word, and he said, Reverend Meyer, I think you spelled that wrong. I think you meant lions. Gird up the lions of your mind. Well, it's not bad. It's not what Peter's talking about. Girding up your loins in the ancient world was like getting yourself ready to work. People in the ancient world wear long garments, kind of like what I'm wearing. And if you were about to do work, it's hard to do work when you're wearing a long robe. And so they would take the hem of their robe and they tuck it up into their belt. And that way they'd be more free to move, they'd be more ready to work. It was sort of the ancient version of putting on your car hearts, ready to work. But Peter has a very specific kind of work in mind. Peter has the Passover on his mind when he gives this instruction. And why do I say that? Just a couple verses later, Peter reminds us that we were not redeemed by silver or gold, but by a lamb without blemish or defect. If you remember, the Passover, that's the Passover lamb, right? When the Israelites chose a Passover lamb, it was supposed to be a lamb without blemish or defect. So Peter is in a Passover frame of mind. Do you remember the dress code for the Passover? Do you remember how you're supposed to dress when you go to the Passover? If you don't, let me remind you, it's not a dinner jacket. Exodus 12:11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You ate the Passover with girded loins. Why? Because you were expecting to act. The Israelites were instructed to eat the Passover in a posture of readiness. They were expecting the living God to do something. And when he acted, they were supposed to be poised and ready and dressed to act with him. So when Peter calls us to gird up the loins of our mind... He's calling us to enter into a frame of mind where we expect God to act in this world and we are ready to act with him when he does. And more than that, when he calls us to gird up the loins of our mind, he's calling us to look deeper at the story of history and what's going on in our lives right now and who's really running the story. So for the Israelites, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. This is not Pharaoh's story. This is not about Egypt's power. This is the story of the living God. Be ready to act. For the people in Asia Minor, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. This is, this is not Caesar's story and a story about the power of Rome. This is the power of the living God and Jesus, his son, and the new Jerusalem. Be ready to act. Be ready to act. 
And for us, he's saying, this is not the story of the political powers of the world in Washington or Ottawa or Paris or London or wherever you want to say. This is the story of the living God. Be poised. Be ready to act with him, for he will act. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be alert and sober-minded. The second verse, second time that the word alert is used, Peter uses the Greek word sophronesita, sophronesita. And I'm not going to say as much about this because I don't have time. But sophronesita suggests moderation and self-control. So it's a lot like um, soberness, the sense of being clear-headed, clear-headed in the middle of the storm. And I think what's most interesting and what I do want to point out is that he says, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. Prayer is one of the chief practices of Christians that keeps us centered on the new Jerusalem and on the true story of the world and on our rock amidst the storm. So let me go on then to the third of the uses of the word alert. In chapter 5, the last passage I read, the word alert is translated as gregoreo, gregoreo, and actually the, the English name Gregory is based on that Greek verb, gregoreo. Gregoreo means to watch. So be alert, be watchful. In the context of this passage, I think it's pretty clear that what Peter is calling the church to be watchful for is the work of the evil one. Be watchful because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. Watch out for the work of the evil one because it is in times of stress, it is in times of panic, it is in times of fear that the devil looks to get a foothold in our life. When we are under stress, when we are worried, the evil one is able to find new footholds in our life, so we need to be watchful. And here, let me take you back to that story on the boat, on that ferry. When the panic sets in, the devil takes hold, and so most of the people are behaving aggressively and lashing out. Some of the people are just sort of collapsing and are unable to act. Evil and panic take hold of them and render them either violent or useless. And that's a timely word for us. In our stress, in our stressful times, the two ways the devil will try to get us to act, aggression, lashing out, helplessness, passivity. Peter's way is the third way, alert and sober-minded. And I think of that one individual that some people reported on the boat, the guy who was calm in the middle of the storm, who encouraged people who were panicking, who handed out life jackets. That's who we are in the world. Not handing out life jackets, but pointing to the one who is our life. Talking to the anxious, frightened people and saying there is hope. Telling them the true story of the world. Holding up our Lord so that we can walk through the dark places. Alert and sober-minded in the storm. I think it's really likely that when Peter calls the church three times to be alert and sober-minded, that call comes out of his own experience. 
that comes out of his own experience with stress. And I'm thinking particularly of how Peter reacted in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. That was a stressful time. And interestingly, just like that story of the fairy, if you look at that story of the Garden of Gethsemane, you see all three kinds of human behavior. You see the aggression. That was Peter, right, that first time. He took out the sword and cut off the servant's ear. You see paralysis. Most of the disciples abandon Jesus and flee. And then you see the third way, the way of Jesus. Heals the high priest's servant. Keeps on loving. Keeps focused on his father's will. Keeps following his father's will, even into a painful place. Dies, rises, and defeats the power of the devil. Puts a stake in the heart of the roaring lion. This is more than just an example of how we are called to live in stressful times. This is the center of our hope. This is the center of history. The cross is the still point in the storm. The cross is the source of the living water that sustains us every single day. The cross is the source of the hope that we look to every single morning before we turn on the news so we can stomach what we're about to see. The cross is the source of the life of the world. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Come to his cross and then go out into the world alert and fully sober. Amen. Lord God, it's so good to come to this place. Even though our worship is still a long way from what we would have it be, Lord, it is good to sit here and be reminded together of your eternal promises and the hope that we have in you. Lord, thank you that we can sit at your feet, know the true story of this world, know the power of your resurrection. Lord, may that sink deep into our bones so that we can go out into the world as your sober and alert servants. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.